y'all ever had an expectation of something in the future that really became almost an obsession? Maybe it was something you were promised. Maybe it was something you knew was going to happen. Maybe it was just something you hoped for. But whatever it was, it captured your whole mind, your whole focus, your whole interest. For me, one of them, I've had a few in my life, but one of them was getting tall. Um, as, I, as I've shared before, I have a brother who's 11 years older than me and a brother who's 10 years older than me. And my oldest brother is six foot five, and my second brother is six foot four. And so they were really kind of full grown by the time I was at an age where it was about time for my growth spurt. And I remember my parents, I don't know where they got this information. I don't know where they were drawing on it, but there was something, I guess, several decades ago where if you were measured at a certain age that you were supposed to double that in your life. I don't know what age you was or whatever, but I just remember my parents telling me that according to that, I was going to be 6'6". Six, six. All right. That means I was going to be tallest in the family. I was looking forward to that. I was excited about that. And I became obsessed with it. Constantly measuring myself. Anytime I had a friend that maybe I got a growth spurt before they did and I was a little bit taller than them, I would be sure to point it out. I'm taller than you now. When I got taller than mom, ooh, that was a big moment, you know. And uh, I was just really thrilled about it. But by the time I was, you know, 14, it wasn't happening. I wasn't growing at that rate. I wasn't looking like I was going to reach 6'6 or anything. And the obsession really took hold. And there was an episode, I don't know if you all remember this. I don't know if you ever watched the show. But the Andy Griffith Show. There was an episode where Barney had to reach a certain height and weight requirement in order to continue on as a deputy. And uh, and what they did to get him taller was they stretched him. They had to hang and just stretched for a while until he was supposed to, supposed to grow another inch or something like that. I don't know what he was exactly. Something like that. So I tried that. I didn't, I didn't do the whole thing that he did, but I would hang from monkey bars, and I would do all sorts of things because I just knew that was going to add you know, another inch, another two inches. I was going to get there. Well, as you all could tell, I did not reach 6'6". Six, six. I barely got over six foot. Um, I, I made it to the, just just slightly taller than my dad, so that was enough, I guess. I wasn't the shortest male in the family. But that whole reality just kind of became an obsession for several years there. And I was willing to do whatever it took to reach that obsession. Today, in our passage, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we find David in really kind of that sort of situation. David has been promised by God that he would be king of Israel. And, you know, that, that had to weigh on his mind. God has promised me. The prophet has anointed me in front of my brothers. God has blessed me with victories over Goliath, victories over the Philistines, 
I'm married to the king's daughter, Michael. Everything's lined up. I should be king. And we're probably at least at least 10 years into the promise. 10 years since he's been anointed there in his father's house by Samuel. That's a long time to wait. And he finds himself with an opportunity. He finds himself in a situation where he can lay hold of that promise. It's a moment of temptation. And the story plays out in such a way that that it reveals that it was, in fact, a temptation, David, a temptation that he overcame. And I want to look at this passage this morning through the lens of fighting temptation. I want to look at the things that, that feed temptation, and I want to look at the things that starve temptation, things that, that help us overcome based upon David's response here. So let's look here in chapter 24. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, most of the passage this morning. I think it's important that we hear the Word of God whenever possible um, in, in such settings. So let, let's take a look at it. It says, When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the wilderness near Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went and looked for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of that cave, and so they said to him, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so that you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, I swear before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. And after that, David got up, went out of the cave, and called to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of your people? who say, look, David intends to harm you. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord, since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. As the old Proverbs say, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. Who has the king of Israel come after? What are you chasing after? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me 
from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the resources, Lord, to overcome temptation. Resources born in your presence, in your teaching, in your people. God, I pray that you would help us to, to lean on those, to learn from those, to, to grow from those, to be the people that you've called us to be. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Temptation is constantly around us. There are always those things, those things that come to, at us randomly, those things that sometimes we participate in ourselves, some, those things that grab our attention and our focus and draw us away from where God would have us to be. Historian Shelby Foote tells a story of a, a soldier in the American Civil War who was wounded at the Battle of Shiloh. And his commander ordered him to go to the rear of the battle since he was wounded. But the fighting was fierce, and within just a few minutes, he returned to his commanding officer, wounded as he was, and he said, Captain, give me a gun. This fight ain't got no rear. There wasn't anywhere to run. He had to fight. He was surrounded by the enemy. And we find ourselves quite often in a similar situation. We all know about fleeing, that, that Paul tells us, that when we're tempted, that God gives us an avenue for fleeing, and that that should be our route. And that's absolutely our first response to temptation, to sin. Get out of there. Get away from it. Separate ourselves from those things that cause us temptation. But the reality of the situation is quite often this temptation rests within our own hearts, within our own minds, and sometimes there really just isn't anywhere to run. And so we need to learn how to, to starve temptation and how not to feed it when it comes our way. So let's look here at what David faced and, and, and what are those realities that, that feed temptation? What are those realities that help temptation to have its role in our lives? The first, I think, is impatience. I mentioned earlier that David's on the run, and he's probably been on the run from Saul for, as I said, about a decade at this point. Can you imagine? For 10 years, 10 years, you've been told, you're the king. You're God's anointed. You've seen evidence of it. You've heard from God's prophet. You've from Several of God's prophets, you, you've encountered God's blessings over and over and over again. Everything's pointing to this end, to this outcome, to this reality. And yet, all you've gotten is 10 years of running, 10 years of hiding, 10 years of living in the wilderness. I've been in this wilderness a few times that David was running from Saul. It's not a pleasant place. It's not a place that you'd look at and say, oh, nice place for a home. The only people who live out there are, are the Bedouins. 
with their sheep, their goats, their camels, those sorts of people. They, they, they live out there, but no one else does. There's no communities, there's no cities, there's no places to dwell in. And this has been David's experience. And as you read the narrative here, and you see Saul move into the cave, and, and you see this opportunity for David, you, you have to know that that weighed heavy on his heart. It's been 10 years, God. Is this how you want to do it? While the king is relieving himself? You work in strange ways, God, but this would be one of your stranger ones, I have to say. The temptation's there. And we deal with that temptation today, too. You know, as a, as a professor, as a former youth pastor and so forth, I deal with, with young people who are, who are tempted, who are struggling with waiting for marriage, to have sex. You know? In their minds, oh my gosh, six months, can we really wait six months? It's too much, or whatever it is. Even though God's word has been clear, and they want to live according to God's word, and it's it's a in some cases for many of them, it's a it's a promise that they made. When that temptation's there, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. And here's the thing about temptation. The longer you wait, the harder it gets. It's not like it's one of those things where, you know, well, if I just put it off long enough, it's going to subside and everything's going to be okay. Temptation gets stronger the more you have been waiting because impatience sets in. Maybe it's the businessman who has been waiting for that promotion been waiting for that next step in his job. The woman waiting for that next opportunity. And the temptation sets in to, to take shortcuts. Well, if I, if I cut this corner or if I do this, then I'll be seen. If I undermine my coworker, if I set them up for a fall, then that puts me a step ahead of them. The weight settles in on our hearts and on our minds, and, and it becomes this feeder of temptation to go a route that lacks integrity, to go, to go a route that goes against God's principles and God's perspective and mindset and to, to who he's called us to be as his people. We are all driven by a desire for the right I want it, and I want it now. Second feeder of temptation is, is pain. Saul had caused David uh, a lot of pain. He had killed people who were in his care. Remember the story of the priest who had helped David, and Saul wiped him out. David said what? Their death. It's on my shoulders. He's living in a very uncomfortable situation. He has experienced 
physical attacks. He's had spears thrown at him. He suffered emotional attacks. This is a man that, that David had ministered to, singing the songs to, to calm his spirit, praying for him, working with him, doing whatever was asked of him, and yet over and over and over again, this guy betrayed David, turns against him, attacked him. There wasn't anything David could do to, to, to change this mindset. And the drive for retaliation is one of the strongest temptations we can face. It's probably one of the stronger ones I deal with. I've told you before, I'm the kind of person, if you do me wrong, it sticks with me. Now, God has taught me and he's brought me through a lot in terms of letting things go and growing in that reality. And, and I think I'm much more of a forgiving person than I used to be. I, I hope I am. And continue to grow in that, but man, there was a time when, you know, we followed that whole Chicago rule, if you remember the untouchables. They bring a knife, you bring a gun. They send one of your guys to the hospital, you send one of their guys to the morgue. If you remember that speech or not, but it resonated with me, something that from that movie just I carry with me because that's kind of my mindset. That's where I've always been. And I have a very, very long memory. That's not what God has called us to be. That's not who God has called us to be. God has called us to be what people who love others. We read from 1 John about loving one another, loving our fellow believers, but it goes further than that, doesn't it? Jesus said what? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone gives you a hardship of, of taking your, your cloak, give them your other garment as well. If someone says, I want you to carry this for me a mile, you'll say, okay, I'll carry it two miles. Jesus called us to go further in grace than just forgiveness. He called us to be active participants in seeking the well-being of those who would hurt us. That's hard. The temptation for retaliation is constantly calling us, challenging us to go a different route. Then there, of course, is entitlement. The belief that I deserve better. Everywhere. It seems to be an epidemic in our culture today. Not that there's, there's two kinds of it. There's the kind that says, I worked for it, therefore I deserve it. And there's the kind that just says, I deserve it regardless, just because I deserve it. But both, whether it's something we worked for, something we so-called earned, or something we just think we deserve, both will feed the temptation. to go a different route, a, a route that is not pleasing to God, a, a route that hurts others, a route that undermines our integrity. David, again, is 
no doubt facing this, not just in terms of the throne. I deserve the throne. He did deserve the throne. He was God's anointed. But what? I deserve at least a modicum of comfort. I'm out here running around with these men in this wilderness. I've been doing so for years. When do I get to rest? When do I get that kingdom that I deserve? And this is one of those things that starts with the famous saying that I would imagine everyone in this room has uttered at least once in their life. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's an interesting concept, fairness. It's not something that we typically want when it costs us something or when we're trying to balance the scales of, with those around us. And it means taking away from us. But man, we like to throw it out when things aren't going our way. When we're not getting the, the things we think we deserve. It's a dangerous mindset. It's a mindset that leads to anger, resentment. Then, of course, there's peer pressure. The good old peer pressure. David's facing that here, is he not? Verse 4, his men, David, this is your chance. This is our chance, David. You're not just helping yourself by acting out against Saul here. You're helping us. We can all begin to enjoy the kingdom. If you just step out and kill the man, he's right there. He's right there. He's clearly vulnerable. His bodyguards are outside. They're not going to come in with the king into such a situation. It doesn't get any easier than this. You'll never face another opportunity like this. And let's face it, all of us have done things in groups that we would never do by ourselves. We've all attempted things, carried out things, sometimes positive, a lot of times negative. That if we were left to our own thoughts, to our own disposition, our own perceptions of things, we would say, nope. But when you got that friend who's pointing out how easy it is, how it's just right there, how I'm doing it, you could do it too. Feeds that temptation, feeds that hunger. And then there is the rationalizations. Rationalizations are those things where we convince ourselves that it's not quite as bad as we thought. Second half of verse 4 and verse 5. You see that, get David just a little bit here. When he steps forward and, and he cuts off the corner of the robe. Now, Thinking to ourselves, that's not a that's not a big deal. 
cut off the corner of a robe. Well, there's several things going on here that, that really are kind of lost in our culture. We don't understand exactly what's involved. First of all, to damage a piece of clothing was a very expensive thing. It was costly. No doubt this was some sort of royal garment, so it would have been even more costly given the, the fabric and so forth that had to be made. But remember, every single garment, every single garment that these people owned and lived with and walked with had to be hand-woven before it could be made. They didn't have machines that did it for them. They didn't have these, these great factories that would turn out you know, yards and yards of cloth that things could be made from. It had to all be hand-woven. And the more expensive the thread, the more delicate the work, the more costly it was. So there was some expense. There was some cost that David brought to Saul here. There was also the, the issue of his ceremonial standing. Deuteronomy and Leviticus tell us about how you held onto the corners of your garment, the, the tassels of your garment, to pray. By cutting off the corner here, David was, in many ways, preventing that practice. It was symbolic, to be sure, but it was still an expression. It was hurting Saul's reputation. Imagine his men, imagine the others, even as David comes out and says, I got your garment here. Saul's reputation has taken another hit. Now, again, Saul's in the wrong with the pursuit and all that. That's what? That's a rationalization. If he hadn't been where he wasn't supposed to be, then I wouldn't have done what I wasn't supposed to do. That's a rationalization. And this is how our mind works. We we will take a, a portion of a person's reputation or or a, a slight cut here or a, a slight shortcut around the way things are supposed to be done. I didn't cheat or I didn't whatever. We're like the child, you know, who, who finds a loophole when their parents don't give them specific instructions of exactly what they're supposed to do. Well, you didn't say I couldn't do this or that or whatever the case may be. That's the rationalization. It's so easy for that to take hold. It's so easy for us to, to hold disgust for temptations of others while rationalizing our own path into sin. And this comes from the reality that the world around us has a skewed view of temptation. The world has has see, sees temptation as something to be toyed with, something to be played with. I mean, there's TV shows called Temptation Island and things like that. I have no idea what those shows are. But just the title is like, okay, we're going to go to, it applies to me, they're going to go to an island where they are tempted. I don't know what else goes on there, but that seems to be the nature of it. We're making a TV show about putting ourselves in the way of temptation. That's the world's mindset about temptation. That's, that's the skewed view of it. 
Early on, one of my bosses had a poster in their office that said, I can resist everything except temptation. There's a cute little baby making this cute little face. I didn't realize it until later when I was minoring in literature in college that that's actually a quote from Oscar Wilde. He wrote, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. I can resist everything but temptation. I don't know what you know about Oscar Wilde, but he was not exactly a paragon of virtue. That's the world's take on temptation. That's the world's take on sin. And so it becomes easy to rationalize, to minimize, to, 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 to say that what we're doing and what we're pursuing is not really all that bad. But James warns us in chapter 1 to not feed temptation. He says in verse 14 and 15, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Don't feed the temptation. you got to starve it. So how do we starve it? How do we starve temptation? What are the things we see here in this passage that help David overcome? The first thing that we have that starves temptation is respect. A real, honest, authentic respect. David had respect, maybe not for Saul, but he had what? He had respect for Saul's office. Verse 8. I have sworn by God that I will not, what? Touch his anointed. Now, David knew that he was, in fact, God's anointed. And so, what? If he's going to have respect for the position he's longing for, if he's going to, if he's going to be moving in a certain direction to hold a certain position, to, then what? He needs to hold the person who currently has that office in place. When we undermine and we, we gut people who are in a position or in an office that, that we desire or we think our person should have or whatever, then what? We're actually undermining ourselves when we get into that position. We have lessened the office. We have lessened the position. We have lessened the prize. Have you ever won something that you didn't really deserve and you really couldn't enjoy the victory because... What? You had cheapened the prize. Yeah, I, I finished that goal. I, I accomplished that task. I, I did that which couldn't be done, but you know what? I did it in such a way that it really wasn't a victory that it should have been. I cheated my way into it. We have to have respect for that which we're pursuing, and having respect for it helps us to, to see that the temptation to go around is, is the temptation to undermine what it is we're actually seeking. When we're interacting 
with someone out there. And there's the temptation to undermine them or to hurt them or to, to get back at them or whatever it may be. We need to remember what? That that person is what? Somebody Christ died for. Somebody created in God's image. And if they're in God's image, and Christ died for them, then whatever else they have or don't have, they matter. Saul, or David here in verse 12, is still looking to redeem Saul. He's still looking to bring Saul back after 10 years of abuse and attacks and, and, and all sorts of other things. David still says, Saul, come back. Let's have a relationship we should have. I'm here to support you. Don't listen to those people who say that I'm not. He's still trying to redeem him. And as we live and as we function, we need to be interceding for others. It's hard to hold a grudge. Not impossible, but it's hard to hold a grudge against somebody you're praying for. Somebody you're interceding on behalf of. You're praying for their well-being and their success. Second thing is trust, in particular, trust in God. So often, again, we take the shortcuts we do, we, we, we go the routes that we go because we really don't believe God has it in his hands. We really don't trust God to take care of it. David's victory here in terms of overcoming this is expressed to us in verses 11 and 12 where he says what? I trust God to take care of this. In God's timing, in God's plan, in God's purpose, I'm going to let him take care of you, Saul. Because I trust God to do this, I don't have to. Because I trust God to, to see me to that end goal, I don't have to work and manipulate it myself. I don't have to sin against my brothers and sisters or against God to get to a place if I know God is going to get me there, ultimately. Third, honesty starves temptation. Honesty, especially in terms of our actions. Actions, as it's been said, and I think it's correct, actions speak louder than words. And here in verse 13, David makes that clear. Wickedness comes from wicked people. Jesus says it as well. What proceeds out of the mouth, what is an expression of what's in the heart? How we act is an expression of who we are. And to pursue action is not to pursue just being good. It's not to pursue uh, actions that say, look how righteous I am. To pursue action is to say, I want 
what I do to be a reflection of who I am. And what we've learned and what we've experienced from both biblical truth and, and from other uh, observation and so forth, is that what you do becomes ultimately who you are. Repeated action, whether it's good action or bad action, becomes your heart. Becomes your mindset, becomes your perspective. A habit is simply an action that has taken hold of who we are. And you can have good habits and you can have bad habits. And so we need to be honest with our actions. We need to be pursuing the actions that God has called us to. And then lastly, hope. Nothing will starve temptation like hope. And it does this two ways. It, it, it does it first by helping us to see that before we yield to the sin, before we yield to the temptation, that we understand that there is ultimately something better. If I hold out now, I can get something better then. John Piper wrote, Temptation gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be happier if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. But if we have hope, if we have truth, if we were holding on to that truth, if we're holding on to that hope, then we can see, we can, we can see through the lies of the temptation to see that we're not better. Even in now. We can hold on. We can resist. But the second way hope helps us with temptation. is to realize that should we fail, should we give in, should we yield to that temptation, should it win a victory over us, that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the journey. We haven't lost because Christ is our victory, because Christ can bring us through that. So much so that we know from story after story after story in the Bible that God can even use our mistakes to his glory. That's the power God has over sin, over hurt, over pain. If God can take our mistakes and use them for his glory, then what? He can use us even in our errors for his purposes. just need to be moving forward in His grace and in His goodness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says what? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wherever you're at on this road of temptation, Whatever it is you're struggling with, God has given you a plan, a recipe, if you will, for overcoming temptation. It begins with fleeing. But if you find yourself so ingrained in something that, that running away from it's really not going to work, 
then we need to move into the starving and the feeding reality. All along the way, trusting, having the hope, knowledge. Scripture says the hope that doesn't disappoint, that God will redeem us. He is helping us to grow. To be more like him. That's the journey we're on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your goodness. For the victories that you give us. For the deliverance that you provide for the hope that you grant. God, I just pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to those things that have a hold of us that shouldn't. God, help us to, to take the active steps appropriate to Overcoming that temptation to walking in a way that's pleasing to you, that ultimately healthiest for us. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's never surrendered their life to you, who's never experienced the salvation you offer, who doesn't walk in the power you provide to overcome temptation, that you would draw them in this moment, in this time, that they would respond in faith. But Lord, I also want to lift up my brothers and sisters and myself here this morning and ask that you help us to walk in a way that's pleasing to you, that's honoring to you. You're so good. Help us to see that, respond to that, lean into that in the lives that we live. In Christ's name.